Finnovate showcases cutting-edge banking and financial technology through a global conference series featuring short-form demos and thought leadership. Now, the conversation continues on the Finnovate podcast. Hello and welcome to the Finnovate podcast. Joining me today, we have Sunaina Sinha, the managing partner at Sabil Capital. Sunaina, thank you so much for joining me today. Greg, thank you for having me. So to get things started, I always like to give our guests a chance to just introduce themselves. Can you give a little background about yourself and your role at Sabil Capital? Absolutely. So I'm the managing partner of Sabil Capital. We're a private funds advisor to the private equity growth and venture capital industry. We've been in business for over 10 years and have advised on countless transactions across the market in US and Europe. And we are essentially the advisor of choice to growth and venture funds that are looking to catalyze their own fundraises or secondary transactions on their funds or assets. I know we'll dive into that in more detail a bit later, but we are the advisor to many of the capital providers to the fintech entrepreneurs who may be listening in on this. Excellent. That's great. And I think one of the things that is top of a lot of people's mind right now is what is going to happen to the venture capital space? And I think before we get into, you know, kind of looking towards the future, let's start with where we are at the moment. What are you seeing right now in terms of the current state of play in the VC landscape? You know, we're really seeing three key themes play out uh, with regards to VCs. Um, The first is, uh, and, and this is not new, but it continues, private for longer. You know, there is no impetus, very little catalyst for why a business should not be held private through multiple rounds of financings. Um, And that very much continues to be the theme. A number of venture capitalists and growth capitalists now believe that a billion dollar valuation, well, that's pretty standard. So many can do that. Can you get me to five? Can we get me to 10 before we take this out in a, in a SPAC sale or, a, um, or an IPO or direct listing? So we're seeing private for longer for accruing greater value becoming very much the norm and that's here to say. The second part that is coming into play as a result of the first is that there is need for liquidity in the early part of the cap table of many of these businesses, especially with some of the early funds, the seed funds, the early VC funds that may have invested in a business five, seven, eight years ago, whose investors now need liquidity or want liquidity. And the only way to organize that really is via the secondaries market. And the third theme that we're seeing is very much a swing of the pendulum from early stage investing, i.e. seed, series A, to later stage investing, where investors are saying, given where we are in this cycle, the macro cycle, they would rather take a little bit less return and a lot less risk um, by being in the growth space, i.e. businesses that have really ramped up in ARR or or revenue, and take that position and really shoot for a 3x type of return to the end investor on a net basis, rather than try to shoot their lights out in the early part of the VC investing spectrum. Those are really good points. And I love how you just kind of casually toss out there. Oh, yeah, $1 billion valuation. You know, who who doesn't have that anymore, right? <laughs> no, I think we do need to maybe redefine the word unicorn. There's herds of unicorns right now where someone undercuts the uh, the idea, right. you know, how the phrase came to be in the first place. But what I really want to unpack is this, this the second point you had there around the secondary market, because I think this is something which, you know, if you're not really, you know, inside an understanding of the, the VC space, you might not know what options you really have there. Can you unpack that a little bit more? 
Absolutely. The secondaries market has been around for about 25 years, but certainly in the last five to 10 years has really evolved dramatically in size, depth, and scope. What do I mean by that? Um, there was almost $100 billion of transacted volume in the private secondaries market in 2020 uh, and, it, and expected to be more in 2021. We are seeing the advent of two types of secondaries transactions become pretty standard for the market here. The first is secondaries directs, where a company may approach a secondaries advisor and say, listen, here's where my last round was priced. Can you organize a secondary player to come in and clean up the early part of my cap table, which may be friend, uh, full of friends and family investors, early stage investors like seed and venture funds who've been with me a long time, but I really want to clean them up because they keep calling me saying, when am I giving them cash back and so on. So to get to the next leg of the journey, that type of secondary direct transaction is now pretty routinely organized by advisors like Raymond James and Seville as part of future financing rounds or even in between financing rounds. The second type of deal that is also standard in the market is what's known as continuation vehicle transactions where institutional investors who had invested in a VC fund that has now been in a company seven, eight, nine years, sometimes longer even, are saying to their favorite VC fund, hey, organize a liquidity solution here. So the VC fund or funds that were in a company seven, eight years ago are coming to advisors like ourselves saying, can you organize a way for me to get institutional investors in my original fund liquidity back and then I can hold this company longer in a new vehicle with new investors for another five to six year journey. And that type of continuation vehicle transaction is also done pretty routinely, especially amongst VC and growth funds. I think that's just fascinating. And it's something which, you know, from, from my vantage point, as somebody who sees a lot of early stage startups, you don't hear a lot of people talking about it. And maybe there's a lot of it going on that, you know, I certainly don't see. That's entirely possible. People are under no obligation to tell me the inner workings of their, you know, financials and things like that. But it is something which I think, you know, there, there are a lot more options than people sometimes think about when it comes to getting that liquidity. And this is a, a major pain point for a lot of early stage companies as well. That that liquidity crunch can be just, just a killer if you're not, if you don't of a plan to overcome it. So I also want to come back to the, the third piece that you said, they're kind of talking about the shift from VCs kind of more prospecting, more sort of series A, early stage companies towards the kind of later stage, looking at um, you know the returns that you're able to get there. Now, obviously what we're seeing now, what you're seeing lines up with what, what we've been seeing from our side at Finnovate. What do you think is going to happen in the next couple of years? The, will the pendulum start to swing back and we'll see more companies or more VC money kind of going after those early stage companies again? Or will we see kind of a, a continuation of where we are right now? You know, everything in the markets is about supply and demand. And at the moment, we have so many companies, um, certainly fintech companies that are private for longer, that have accrued value and is so quickly that there's so much opportunity available in that uh, in that uh, space, a uh, uh, growth space, which are what I call the later stage, certainly series B, C, and beyond, that investors are now saying that there hasn't been enough capital over the last decade focus there. And you've seen a number of large funds say, listen, that's where I'm going to focus. Now, uh, what's happening as a result of that? Those valuations are getting stratospheric and are getting bid up. So over time, absolutely, will we see the swing pendulum swing back? 
for sure. Now, the question is when? Now, nobody has a crystal ball. But I think that as we see that supply-demand balance come into uh, equilibrium and also surpassed equilibrium, i.e. there's so much supply of capital for that end of the market, by definition, you're going to see some of these funds saying, actually, I want to go a bit earlier stage because I can pick up better value that way. So uh, you will see it swing back, but today you're seeing a focus on the later part of the cap table here because um, a number of institutional investors are saying, how do I shorten the path to a liquidation event? If I go in in the Series A, I'm looking at now eight, 10 years plus in the case of some of these businesses, but if I go in in the B or the C, maybe I'm only looking at five or six. So it's also a case of duration matching for the investors here who are saying, how long do I really want to hold this thing before I can show an exit and a liquidity event for my own investors? Fascinating. Yeah, no, this is really interesting. And obviously, we're kind of approaching this from the standpoint of really high-level like macroeconomic trends here. Um, and I think that's a really great way of looking at the industry because so many of us get bogged down, you know, heads down in sort of the immediate project in front of us. We don't always think about these large-scale economic shifts and, and what that can do to the industry. You know, one topic which I think we probably should talk about is the role inflation will pay, will play in the VC landscape in fintech because you know that's there, there are obviously a lot of different strings kind of pulling in different directions and you're talking about uh, different motivations and things like that. But um, th it does seem that inflation will have a role in, at least to some extent, in how venture capital continues to unfold in the fintech space. What's your viewpoint on what we can expect to see there or what we maybe should be watching out for there? You know, the first thing to note as we dive into this discussion is that the range of possible outcomes is a lot wider today uh, you know, uh, around the median, the bell curve is wider than it was um, a year ago. There's no question about it. Now, regardless of whether you believe inflation is transitory or is going to be here to stay, you have to decide as the as as a as a manager of a fintech business or a, or a venture fund, how are you going to ride this out? How are you going to ride this through? Um, there are two ways to think about it. One school of thought that's espoused by many economists and many um, uh, many folks who follow markets is if you look historically at the type of companies that have performed well during periods of inflation, you go towards cash flow generative, what one calls value stocks as opposed to growth stocks. Theory being, if you do a DCF and, and, and a net present value calculation of these businesses, then you automatically, if you're using a higher um, rate of, 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 of return because you've got a discount long dated cash flows back, that business is going to be worth less because it's not making money today, it's going to make money in five or seven years from now than those companies that are cash flow generating today. So that's what the public market theories will tell you. That's what economists will tell you. However, I believe that the fintech growth and disruption that is so seismic that's happening to industries and consumer behavior as a result of some of these technologies is very much going to outpace anything that happens with inflation. Firstly, let's really try to dive into what is causing these inflation. Gas price rises, packaging rises, shipping rises that's not gonna impact your favorite FinTech business too much, right? Let's be real. The second thing, of course, is the fact that you are looking at companies that are growing 20, 30, 40, 50% year on year. So anything that's happening from an inflation, inflation impact, even if it's 5% inflation or 7% inflation, is really not gonna dampen too much the growth trends of some of these businesses and for the asset class in general with respect to FinTech. That's my personal belief. But then again, you know, who knows what the future holds, but that's where I'm placing my bet. 
Yeah, no, this seems like an opportunity. Who knows where the future holds this is a good lead into an old joke that I have, which is, you know, an economist is somebody who will tell you tomorrow why the predictions he made yesterday didn't come true today, <laughs> um, which I think you see a lot of if you read, you know, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, right? yeah. you, every now and again, you find a, people, oh, sorry, my bad. This is this is exactly I was right, but it didn't happen the way I thought it was going to because of X, Y and Z. Um, but I, I think it is we're thinking about what, what happens in that kind of really big picture environment. And, and obviously, you know, we're, we're probably not at a point where fintech innovators need to seriously be worried about this, but it is something to keep an eye on. Um, now, uh, looking at the clock here, I, I'd like to jump ahead to you know, the, something that'll be really useful for our early stage fintech listeners. Um, as you can imagine, we get quite a few of, of those types of people listening into this show. And, and I'm sure they would love to hear your thoughts on some of the best practices for raising capital. What advice do you have for people to be successful in this area? You know, I have three key pieces of advice. The first is try to de-risk your value proposition from a fundraising perspective before you go to venture investors um, what do I mean by that? Try to get anchor capital in from folks who've known you a long time. Either that's customers who've tried your product and love it, or probably more importantly, friends, families, former bosses, um, you know, uh, folks in your family circle, friend circle who can really become stalwarts of the fundraise and can anchor the fundraise. So don't go with zero in your hand. That's that's my first piece of advice. My second piece of advice, and probably the most important piece of advice I can give any listener today, is practice, practice, practice. I still don't understand for the life of me why folks don't practice a one minute, five minute, and 20 minute version of their pitch and do so repeatedly. Go and do it scores of times with folks that are lower down in the pecking order of the investors you want. Get them to pressure test you, ask you lots of questions, and then build a FAQ library of questions that are coming up very often and how best to answer them. Then you go and pitch to the tier one investors that you most seek. And my third piece of advice is really think outside of the box when you build your investor list. You know, everyone can pull up the who's who of the venture industry and make a list of those. But think about other strategic partners who might be investors, customers who might be in, become investors, uh, as well as folks farther afield, geographically farther afield, who may want um, to have a, a, an in, inroads into your uh, product, company, um, industry, as you will. So think outside of the box. Look at the box. Look at European investors. Look at Asian investors. Look at suppliers. Look at customers. They build that list in a variety of different ways. So those are my three pieces of advice. Yeah, that's excellent. And that lines up with a lot of things that, that I frequently try and tell people as well. You know, I think one of the challenges is people have more options than they sometimes perceive. And you see that happen a lot in uh, venture capital in particular, where you think, oh, here's the path I need to walk. I love the idea of exploring alternative sources, looking for you know, creative solutions, um, other geographies, or other types of companies getting them involved. I think that's great. And, and obviously, you know, what you said about practicing your pitch really resonates with me. We see this a lot at Finnovate as well. Um, you know, companies get up there on stage and you can sometimes tell that they haven't put the work in, in order to be successful. And you just, in the back of your mind, think, you know, how many of these opportunities do you really have? How many chances do you have at that meeting with that high power VC firm? Are you sure you don't want to take another week and just really 
practice and refine and prepare so that by the time you get up there in front of somebody in that situation that really matters, you've got something that you can stand behind that you know is going to knock their socks off. And so um, I'm a huge believer in that type of practicing, you know, and to your point as yeah. well, you know, one minute version, five minute version, 20 minute version, you don't know how much time you're going to have. All of those pieces need to be cards. You can just pull out, say, okay, I'm ready. I've got a five minute pitch ready to go. This is tried and tested. I can deliver this performance in my sleep. That's what I think it really takes as well. Um, so I really appreciate your perspective here, obviously talking through some of those really big picture pieces. And then I think that advice is great. Uh, Sunana, thank you so much for joining me today on the, on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Greg. It was a pleasure. The Finnovate podcast is produced by Informa Connect in association with Provoke.fm Media. Check out Finnovate.com for information on Finnovate's upcoming shows and to learn how you can get involved. The discount code Finnovate Podcast will save you 20% on tickets to all of our events. And you can email us at info at for information on sponsoring, speaking, or demoing. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.